All right, let's look at our scripture, which can be found on the back of the bulletin, or it can be found on the screen as we continue uh, through the book of John. Jesus said, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I, I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. The word of the Lord. Well, do you ever ask the question, how did I get to where I am? Life is a series of decisions, isn't it? Some of which are so momentous that they shift us into a direction that we never could have foreseen. It's that same way with the world, right? How did we get to where we are in the world? There are certain moments in world history that have changed the world, have moved the world in its access to bring us to a place that we never would have been if that decision, that moment hadn't happened. I can think of some of those in, in human history. For instance, Christopher Columbus in 1492 discovering uh, America and how there was this whole new world, this whole new part of the world that no one ever knew and that it ushered in this era, good and bad, of, of colonialism as well, where this land grab began and all of these indigenous people were affected and how that's affected the world, that discovery. What about the Boston Tea Party in 1773? That decision of those colonists to overthrow the British goods because they were being taxed and they didn't want it. And that ushered in the American Revolutionary War, uh, one of the first major wars in history to overcome a tyrannical rule of the monarchy. And the outcome of that war shocked the world. It certainly affected uh, the entire world. It affected us. The assassination of the Archduke uh, Franz Ferdinand in Austria that ushered in the Great War that was to kill over 9 million people, the first world war because it brought in the various nations of the world. These are all events that have changed our history, who we are as humans in a uh, in a large way. But amidst all of the affairs and events of history that have shifted the world, none of them can compare to that of the cross. It's in that moment, those six hours one Friday that, uh, that have changed everything, that God became man and got up on a cross and died a substitutionary death for his people, that they might be free from the tyranny of Satan, that through the cross, the resurrection was made possible, that victory 
over death itself was achieved through Jesus Christ. The cross continues to reverberate through history. We've come to a critical turning point in the book of John. John has been preaching to the crowds for the first 12 chapters, and we are coming to his last public address. Actually, there's one more, so it's almost the last thing that he says. John 1 to 11 has been all about Jesus' preaching. John 12 all the way to 21, over uh, almost half the book is dedicated to the last week of his life as he sets his face toward the cross. Jesus has been speaking, and now he's turning himself to focus on what he has to do, namely to die. And so one of the last things that Jesus speaks on is the cross. And in this passage, we see as Jesus speaks on the cross that he shows the effect that it is going to have on the world. In fact, it's going to have three different effects that we are going to look at today. Jesus speaks on the effect that the cross is going to have on himself. Jesus then speaks on the effect it's going to have on the world, how it's going to change the world. And finally, the effect that it has on those who are listening to him. And so we are going to look at these effects and in through looking at them, determine what effect the cross has on you and me. See, we have to answer the question, what are we to do with the cross? Because we cannot avoid it. We cannot deny it. We cannot, uh, we cannot ignore it. It has changed everything forever. So let's look at my first point, the effect that the cross is going to have on Jesus. Jesus in verse 27 speaks and says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Jesus is focusing on what he has to do. He knows he has to go to the cross. His hour is here, meaning the hour of his death. And Jesus speaks of what is going on in his heart. He says, now is my soul troubled. It's how he's feeling right then and there. This word troubled in the Greek is a very interesting word. It could just as easily be translated a revulsion or horror, or anxiety, or terror. Jesus, in essence, is saying, now is my soul terrified. Now, Jesus has not spoken this way before. In the midst of danger, right? The crowds are going to stone him. And yet Jesus walks right through them. No terror whatsoever. The disciples tell him that Herod, the leader of the entire nation, wants to kill you. And yet Jesus is placid and as cool as a cucumber. In fact, numerous times he has said to his disciples, do not be terrified. Right? When they're on the water and they see Jesus walking and they say it's a ghost. And Jesus says, take heart in his eye. Do not be terrified. In John 14, 1, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be terrified. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And in chapter 14, verse 27, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be terrified. Neither let them be afraid. And so we have to ask the question, is Jesus not practicing what he's preaching? No. No. 
The reason Jesus tells the disciples is that they don't have to be terrified is because Jesus is with them. Don't be terrified, disciples, for I am with you. The reason Jesus is now terrified is because he knows that very soon God will not be with him. See, it's not the physical pain that scares Jesus, though I'm sure that it does, this gruesome death that he is to die. It's the spiritual pain that he's going to experience. For all of eternity, the Son of God, Jesus, has been in perfect communion with God the Father, who has expressed his love and his pleasure in his Son. And very, very soon, the Father is going to forsake him. The wrath of God is going to fall upon him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 put it this way, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ is going to literally become sin itself. And because of that, be banished from the presence of God for sin cannot exist in the presence of God. This is why Jesus is going to utter on the cross very soon, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus' terror is well-founded. And he will experience it all the way up through the cross. Remember in Gethsemane, as he is praying and, and in anguish, and his tears are like, uh, his sweat is like drops of blood falling from him. How shall Jesus respond to this terror that he's feeling in his soul? What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? A perfectly natural request, right? Oh God, I don't want to do this. But for this purpose, Jesus says, I have come to this hour. In other words, this is why I'm here. This is why I've come to earth. This is why I was born as a man. This is why I've been obedient and preach the gospel and promise liberation to the captives. Father, glorify your name. Notice he doesn't say, Father, glorify my name. He's saying that more important than my pain and my suffering is your glory, my Father. And how will Jesus bring glory to the Father? Through his obedience and accomplishing the will of the Father. And then a voice, it says, came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Jesus is saying, God the Father is saying, I have glorified it in the incarnation, in the signs that I've done through you, Jesus, in the obedience that you've had for me. My name has been glorified, and I will glorify it again through your death and your resurrection. See, Jesus knows what is coming and is willing to pay the price for the salvation of his people and the glory of his Father. I have in my hand a balance sheet. It's the balance sheet of Redeemer, which is prepared, by the way, by Liz uh, Moen. Liz is our bookkeeper, and she handles all of our financials, and she does this uh, for no cost. It's her ministry to Redeemer. 
as an accountant. I don't know if you know much about balance sheets, but a balance sheet is essentially, on one side, the total assets that a company possesses, and on the other side, the total liabilities it has, plus shareholder equity. In other words, when a company started and they put $10 million into the company, that's shareholder equity. This is a financial balance sheet. But I don't know if you know that I actually have another balance sheet. It's a spiritual balance sheet. It's my balance sheet. This is the balance sheet of me without Jesus Christ. It's me on my own. So what are the assets that I have in my possession? The Bible says there is no one who does good. Not anyone. In other words, on my assets side, I don't have anything in my name to come before God with. What about my liabilities? My liabilities are everything that I've ever done wrong. Everything that I've ever thought wrong. Every lie that I've told, every lustful thought that I've had, every selfish desire that I've had in my mind. Think of how many sins there are on one's balance sheet. 100,000? 200,000? A million? Who knows? And what sort of equity do I have alongside my liabilities? I have none. Nothing to offset those liabilities. Now, the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. And in fact, it goes even further. James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point of it is guilty of breaking all of it. In other words, every single sin that I've ever committed in my life is worthy of death. I have a balance sheet of hundreds of thousands of deaths on my head. Now, if this is the spiritual balance sheet for me, this is the spiritual balance sheet for every single believer in Jesus Christ. Missiologists tell us that there have probably been around seven and a half billion people over the entire course of history who have followed Jesus Christ. Now, if there's seven and a half billion people that have followed Jesus Christ, how many sins does that add up to? If we just say 100,000 sins per person, that's 7.5 trillion sins. 7.5 trillion deaths that have to be paid for. Imagine the terror at having to take that kind of punishment. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Every single sin that I have committed, that I am committing, that I ever will commit, was placed on the shoulders of Jesus Christ at Calvary. And for all of his people. What's the point I'm trying to make? The point I'm trying to make, my friends, is that Jesus Christ was terrified so that you and I would no longer have to be terrified. What do you fear? There's much in this life to be anxious of, isn't there? 
sickness that we might have or fear that we might get, the economy, the instability of the economy that maybe I'll lose my job, how will I feed my family? The future, the world is so uncertain, as well as the fear of sin and death and punishment. But you see, Jesus died on the cross so that you and I would not have to fear, would not have to be terrified. If you are a Christian, every single debt was paid, every single last sin. And additionally, the righteousness of Jesus Christ was transferred to you. There was an infusion of capital, of shareholder equity. As Jesus said, I will give my righteousness to you. And so Jesus says to each one of us, as we live out our life, you do not have to be afraid. And the reason you don't have to be afraid is because I'm with you. And I'm for you. And I will watch over you, body and soul and future for all eternity. Indeed, not even a hair can fall from your head without your heavenly father willing it. So when you are afraid, my friends, remember the cross. Remember what Jesus Christ did for you. Jesus was terrified so that you don't have to be terrified. You need not fear anymore. That was the effect of the cross on Jesus Christ. Well, what about the effect of the cross on the world? In verse 31 and 32, Jesus lists three different effects that the cross is going to have on the world. He says, now is the judgment of this world, number one. Number two, now will the ruler of this world be cast out, number two. And number three, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Momentous effects of the cross on the world. First, now is the judgment of the world. We all understand that at the end of times, when Christ comes again, there will be a last judgment on the world. But what this is saying is that judgment actually begins with the crucifixion. See, the world thought it was passing judgment on Jesus. Not only as it perpetually debated who he was, but ultimately in its decision to put Jesus to death. See, there was a decision of the world at the cross. The world made its decision, we don't want Jesus. Be gone from us. But quite the contrary, God was actually passing judgment on the world, proclaiming it in rebellion against God. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 21 of a landowner who created a vineyard and he rented it out to tenants. And when it was time to collect fruit, he sent his servants to go ahead and collect the fruit. But, but the people who were the tenants, they, they uh, punished the uh, different tenants. They killed some of the, excuse me, the servants who came to collect the fruit. And the landowner said, what will I do? I know I will send my son. They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said, this is the heir. Let us kill the son and the inheritance will be ours. And Jesus said, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will put those wretches 
to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. The world has been judged and condemned at the cross. But Jesus goes on. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. See, the cross seems like Satan's triumph, right? When Jesus is defeated. But it's actually the opposite. It's the defeat of Satan. And that started with Jesus' entrance into the world. Remember the disciples as they are sent out and they minister and, and uh, they come back and they say, we saw even the demons submit to your name. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. But it culminates in the cross. You see, Satan rules humanity through accusation and fear. And he uses the guilt of sin and lies to manipulate and control us. Colossians 2.13 put it this way. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he's speaking of Satan and the demons, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Because of what Jesus does on the cross, Satan no longer can accuse his people. Satan no longer can hold our sins over our heads. We are no longer captive to him anymore. At the very end in Revelation 12:10 it says and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. How did we conquer Satan? How do we overcome him? It's by the blood of the lamb. There's no longer any accusation that Satan can give against you and I that can stick. For Jesus is now king. The second effect of the cross on the world. And finally, the third. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. When Jesus is saying lifted up, he's, it really has a twofold meaning. He's speaking firstly of his death on the cross. Jesus will die on the cross. He will show his love. He will eliminate the legal demands of sin and thus enable us to come to Jesus Christ and be saved. Colossians 1.21 said, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of evil Behavior, your evil behavior. In other words, there was a time when you did not want God. When you were against God and God was against us. And Satan deceived us into believing that God was an enemy. But verse 22 says, by now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. In other words, the cross has reconciled you to God. He's brought us together with him. Free from accusation, we can come to Jesus. 
Jesus's death on the cross is the first meaning of being lifted up. And the second is his exaltation. That he will be lifted up so that he can be seen by all and his people to come to him. Philippians 2.8 said, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. See, the reason is that Jesus will draw all people to himself is that we will see his forgiveness and come to him. We will see his beauty and his majesty and his exaltedness and realize that he is the one that we desire. Says that he will draw all men to himself. Does it mean every single person? No, keep in mind that Jesus is actually responding to a group of Greeks that have come to say, we want to see Jesus. What Jesus is saying when he says, I will draw all men to myself, is that I will draw all kinds of men and women to myself. Jew and Greek, rich and poor, slave trader and monk, black and Asian and Hispanic and white. See, the centuries have passed, and Jesus continues to draw all kinds of men and women to himself. Do you know the fastest evangelical population growth in the entire world is in the nation of Iran? Now, that may be surprising to you, a heavy, heavily Muslim-populated country. About 20 years ago, the number of Christian converts from a Muslim background in Iran was between 5,000 and 10,000 people. Today, it's between 800,000 to 1 million people in 20 years. None of this is good for a regime that depends on a belief in Islam to stay in power. Crackdowns against Christians, converts have been increasingly harsh, especially over the past five years, but evangelism has not slowed. In Iran, if anyone shares their faith, publishes Christian literature, or holds a, a church service in the common language of Farsi, can be arrested, and they are. Punishment is often prison, and sentences are long. Last year, two Christian converts were flogged 80 times for drinking communion wine, and then sentenced to several years in prison for organizing house churches. These people are disowned by their families. They lose their jobs. They have to meet in secret for fear of the police. And you have to ask the question, what would cause anybody in the nation of Iran to choose to convert to Christianity? The answer is right here. When I am lifted up, I will draw all kinds of men and women to myself. Well, we're not in the nation of Iran, but it is easy to feel overcome by the world, isn't it? The world says to us, whether covertly or overtly, do not trust in Jesus Christ. Join us. Live for what we live for. Money, pleasure, power. But the result of those things is an empty life. 
So are you listening to the world? When the world says jump, do you say how high? You need to understand, my friends, that the cross has pronounced judgment on the world. To live for the world ends in death. But we don't have to live for the world. For Jesus says, take heart. I have overcome the world. Satan has no authority over you. You don't have to do what he says anymore. My spirit is in you, and he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So have you been drawn to Jesus Christ? If you have been, choose to live for God. For the Bible says, this world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Choose to live a holy life in obedience and faithfulness to the word of God. To follow the greatest commandment, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Recognize Jesus as the high and lifted one. And worship him alone. For the world has been overcome. This brings me to my final point, the effect of the cross on the listeners that are listening to Jesus. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? See, the crowd understands that Jesus is saying he is going to die. But as they have looked at the Old Testament passages, they see that the Messiah lives forever. And so they're asking, what kind of son of man are you? Now, certainly Jesus is the Messiah, the one who remains forever. But this is in his glorification, which is achieved in and through the shame and pain of his death. Jesus doesn't directly answer them, but rather he says, the light is among you for a little while, longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. Jesus is saying, soon I'm going to the cross. And then I will be going to heaven. So walk while you have the light now, lest the darkness overtake you. In other words, believe in me now as I stand before you. The light is here. If you neglect this opportunity while the light is here, the only thing that is left for you is darkness. In other words, you have enough light to know that I am the way, the truth, and the life. See, there will be darkness when Christ dies on the cross, when all will seem lost, and when it seems like death has triumphed. But Jesus is saying, if you follow me, if you walk in the light now, when the darkness comes, it will not overpower you. It will not master you. Jesus is saying to them that it will not be any easier to place your trust in me after the cross. You should commit yourself to me and trust now before me as the light of the world is taken from you. 
while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. And Jesus is saying to them, if you do believe, if you become a follower, there will be a transformation that will occur in you. You will become a son of the light. You will see God and the beauty of Christ. You will be reconciled to him and you will become a new creation. Christianity is not some sort of life hack or a new way of doing life, but a new life itself. Jesus says, if you believe in me and trust in me, what will characterize your life is light, understanding, and holiness. You will become a son of light, a child of God. We live on the other side of the cross, you and me. We have the scriptures, and the Holy Spirit has been poured out into the world. But we too must recognize that this world is so temporary and ephemeral. James 4.13 puts it this way. Come now, you say. Today or tomorrow we will go into such, and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. As Jesus said to them, he is saying to you and me, the time is now to follow Jesus. So walk in the light. If you are not yet a Christian, embrace the light. Give your heart to Jesus Christ and you will discover the purpose of life and you will know God personally for the first time. For as 2 Corinthians 4, 6 said, for God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, Follow Jesus' command to walk in the light. Walking is a process. It's perpetual. It's ongoing. Jesus is saying, live out this life of belief and faith and obedience. And he says in 1 John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Jesus not only frees us from the condemnation of sin, he introduces us to one another. We are meant to walk this journey of faith, hand in hand, brother and sister, in Jesus Christ, in the fellowship of the church. And if you walk in the light, Jesus says darkness will never overtake you. We all experience hard things in life, don't we? The disciples said, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. But the promise we have from Jesus Christ is I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus said, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble for he sees by the light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. 
Jesus is saying, I will not let you stumble and fall. I will lead you. In conclusion, the greatest thing that has ever happened to mankind is the cross. So believe in Christ. Walk in the light. And you need never fear. For in Jesus Christ, we, his people, have overcome the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we recognize your sacrifice. We honor your terror of going to the cross to pay for each individual death that we owed. Jesus, by your spirit, help us to walk in the light, to be sons of the light, to follow you, to obey you, to not follow the world. For it's in you that we see light. We thank you and we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.